I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Polmeps Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today are Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University and Boaz Atsili of American University. They're the authors of the new book, Triadic Coercion, Israel's Targeting of States that Host Non-State Actors, which was recently published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Wendy and Boaz, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So tell me a little bit about the book. What was the inspiration for writing it? And what were you trying to say uh, with, with this research? Yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll mm -hmm. jump in. So the inspiration for the book goes back to the 2006 war between um, Israel and Lebanon or Israel and Hezbollah. So Boaz and I both had postdoc fellowships at Harvard and we met in the sort of aftermath of that. And we're both quite um, mystified almost or uh, I guess, um, intrigued by um, one aspect of that war, which was Israel's targeting of Lebanon as a state. So as we know, uh, the war began with a um, Hezbollah kidnapping of Israeli soldiers and then began with uh, reciprocal um, fighting between Israel and Hezbollah. And Israel, Israel also bombed um, state installations and state sites of the state of Lebanon, saying that Lebanon needed to take responsibility for Hezbollah's actions and stop and rein in Hezbollah as a non-state actor on Lebanese soil. And this got us thinking, why would Israel uh, target a state that was famously weak, that many would wonder if Le Lebanon even had the capacity to um, stop a non-state actor that's actually stronger than it is militarily, um, why would Israel target a weak host state and the demand that stop non-state actors? And that got us thinking about both the causes of that policy on Israel's end, why it targets host states of non-state actors, and the, co the consequences or the effects. Under what conditions can this policy be effective? Under what conditions does coercing or attempting to coerce a host state actually stop the violent non-state actor on its soil? So the book takes up those two questions. Mm -hmm. What are the drivers of this policy? Under what conditions is it successful? And we look at Israel over the entire history of its uh, existence as a state. From 1949 to the present, the use of Israel's, uh, the use, Israel's use of this policy against Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, the Palestinian Authority. We also consider its use of Jordan as, as part of a, the chapter in Israel's development of this policy in the first place. Then in a, a comparative chapter, we go beyond and, and try to extend our findings to the cases of India and Turkey, um, looking at these two questions over the long durée and uh, in Israel's triadic conflicts with all of its neighbors. So tell me a little bit about then, what did you find? Uh, what does explain uh, Israel's choice of this particular uh, policy? Right. So if we look at the choice or the, the origins of this uh, um, particular policy, uh, we, what we find is that in uh, earlier years, uh, it's basically a trial and error kind of process. Uh, Israel have tried many different things, uh, uh, defensive measures, uh, uh, targeting civilians, etc. And among them was what we call triadic coercion, so trying to uh, target uh, the state, uh, the, the forces of the states, the, the uh, military or police of the state, and, and uh, using that as a way to coerce the state to try to rein in the non-state actors. Um, and uh, when we get to the 1990s, uh, that's where we see a shift where Israel 
basically adapt this policy more wholesale and without asking questions and mm-hmm. without considering whether it's working or not working. So when we, uh, for instance, look at the, at the second intifada, uh, the way Israel uh, uh, thought at least the beginning of, of the second intifada vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority, which was not a state, but could not function as a state. Uh, and later on in 2006, war in Lebanon, uh, so that's where you see sort of like implementation of this triadic coercion in a very automatic way, hmm. rather than asking, will it work? How likely uh, is it to work or not? Were there examples back in the early history of the state that made them think that this was a good or viable strategy? Did they have some template in mind of why or how this would work? Well, our, our earlier chapters are quite historical. So we look at um, the use of triadic coercion against Egypt and Syria. And there, um, we really showcase our argument, which is the other part of our kind of theoretical uh, mission, which is under what conditions is it successful? And our argument there is that a triadic coercion can only succeed against a host state that is strong, that a, that a host state needs a minimum amount of political cohesion and institutional capacity to even meet the demands of the coercer. When this type of strategy is used against a weak host state, even if it is predisposed to be cooperative with Israel, even if it shares its Israel's opposition to the non-state actor, it simply doesn't have the internal cohesion mm-hmm. or institutional capacity to actually act against a non-state actor, which is a difficult thing to do. It requires um, full control of territory. It often is unpopular with the host state's own population, so it has to be done against um, opposition and against the opposition of the non-state actor itself. So looking at Egypt and Syria over time, we find that this this triadic coercion policy is effective in the times when that state has strong host regime and fails when it is weak. So when we look at Egypt, we see although, for example, King Farouk in the early 1950s and the first years of the free officers regime were predisposed to stop Palestinian infiltrations or Palestinian actors, especially coming from Gaza, but simply didn't have the capacity to act in the way Israel was demanding. After the consolidation of Nasser's power after 1956, Nasser does not want to provoke Israel or does not want to be dragged into a conflict mm-hmm. with Israel um, according to the will and timing of non-state actors. And he clamps down on that border and clamps down on Palestinian actors. Similarly, in Syria, um, with the first Ba'ath regime from 1963 to 1970, you have a regime that is very internally fragmented with huge intra-elite rivalries, weak capacity, a failing economy. And under those conditions, the Palestinian Fedayeen have a kind of their heyday from the Syrian border. When um, Hafez al-Assad seizes power in 1970, he shuts down that border completely. He cracks down on Palestinian groups. And under that condition, um, uh, Assad recognizes that the national, or feels that the national security Mm -hmm. interests of Syria is not to get into a conflict with Syria on the on the initiative of Palestinian non-state actors, and he really crocks down on them. So you can conclude that when a host state is strong, um, this policy could be effective. Um, the question we are left with then is why does Israel continue to use the strategy even mm-hmm. against states and host states mm-hmm. that are weak? Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of jumping in, uh, what's interesting that when Israelis look at their past and the use of the, this uh, uh, um, 
a policy in the past uh, from the vintage point of the 1990s, uh, they basically ignore the nuances, ignore the, mm-hmm. the when it worked and when it would not work, and basically say, hey, yeah, the 50s, it worked. Uh, whereas we know uh, that it worked sometimes only under very uh, restricted conditions. Uh, but that nuance is mm-hmm. uh, basically disappearing. They see that as a a policy that was successful in the past. Was there something about uh, kind of Israeli strategic culture mm-hmm. or kind of the way they formulate foreign policy decisions that made them unable to learn those lessons? Yeah. Uh, so I think in, in both uh, the... the um, the process uh, of decision-making uh, was very important because the process of decision-making basically gives uh, the um, uh, security establishment in general and the IDF in particular a much larger say in uh, making mm. this policy than it is common in uh, most democ- democracies at least. Uh, so that uh, that's one thing that was important and also the uh, culture of uh, um, uh, putting practice before theory and uh, encouraging improvisation and encouraging um, uh, sort of like a bottom-up process. Uh, That was very good in terms of uh, producing tactical and sometimes operational uh, advantages for Israel, but it also created a, a sense of uh, deep thinking theory is not very much appreciated. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we don't need to think too much. We need to act. And that, I think, created a situation where uh, uh, this kind of policy tended to be, a, uh, when it sounds like a good idea, people did not ask mm-hmm. the hard questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to to build on that, that's one of what we see as the big contributions of the book. On the one hand, we're looking at under what conditions does triadic coercion succeed, and secondly, in our answer to the the question of what drives it in the first place, we really develop this idea of strategic culture, that it's not simply um, a clearly self-evidently rational policy to target the host state, that what we see in Israel is the hardening over time of the strategic Mm. culture, that these become entrenched ideas, that there's an assumption that this is um, a proper policy and not uh, engaging in the in the critical thinking that Boaz discusses. So here we define um, uh, strategic culture, or we look at it in terms of these two composite elements, decision-making processes and ideas. And in the Israeli mm-hmm. case, we see that in terms of the structure of civil-military relations, the structure of the military itself, the ethos of the military in, in, in valuing action over thought those decision-making processes, as well as the idea of um, force and more force, of aggressive action, teaches the adversary that Israel never surrenders to force, that Israel needs to show its strength given this history of vulnerability and so forth, um, that those two combine to really entrench this strategic culture. And as Boaz was saying, what we see is this hardens over time. We see the, the seeds of the strategic culture in the 50s and the 60s, but by the 90s there is this full consolidation of of this way of thinking Mm -hmm. and it leads to several kinds of um, uh, striking aspects of that that uh, apply in Israel's uh, implementation of triadic coercion Mm -hmm. and this is what we see as a a lack of nuance in its application seeing 
non-state actors, actors, Arab adversaries, they're all sort of the same, not, for example, in the case of Lebanon, distinguishing what are the interests of mm -hmm. the Lebanese government and the interesting of Hez interest of Hezbollah, lack of nuance vis-a-vis -vis the adversary. What we call as sort of a using this policy according to a logic of appropriateness rather than consequences. Israel has the right to use triadic coercion. It's being targeted and has the right to use force um, so that it can use it uh, rather than it being actually leading to mm -hmm. effect. It's an appropriate rather than necessarily effective strategy. And there are other aspects of the strategic well, culture well, as well. Let me push on that a little bit because it's actually very interesting because, as mm -hmm. you say, this can be evaluated on consequences or on appropriateness. Mm -hmm. And I think the earlier conversation we were having was about consequences. Does mm -hmm. it work? But it seems, you know, just from a naive way of thinking about international law, uh, bombing of civilian or state targets of an unrelated, you know, hitting Lebanon to get at Hezbollah or hitting Jordan to get at the PLO just strikes me as illegal and wrong. So how did Israel, mm -hmm. like, bridge that, mm -hmm. that gap? So the thinking is basically uh, the, in Israel is that the state uh, has the legal uh, and moral obligation uh, to whatever comes from its own territory. Uh, so, if it's uh, so, regardless if it's uh, a non-state actor who attacks, the state has the responsibility uh, to stop this. And if they don't, uh, then Israel thinks about it as a, a morally right and legally. A right a thing to do a, to target the state a, rather than that uh, um, non-state actor if if it works. Did, did, let, did, let, did let, the legal yeah. issues ever come up in how Israel thought about this, or did they simply just assume that this was? I think they come up, but uh, kind of in in an assumption way, mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. like it's a. Uh, um, yes, that's that's how it should be done, and uh, uh, the state should be responsible for that. And you can see that mm -hmm, in, in mm -hmm. a lot of the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I want to also add that like, what made uh, this decision like unique in the 1990s is that there was a significant change in the strategic environment in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And Israel all of a sudden finds itself in a sense uh, as, on the one hand, devoid of real strategic threat to itself. So there's a peace with uh, Egypt and with Jordan in 1993. Uh, the Iraqi, government, uh, Iraqi military, which was a very formidable threat, uh, was defeated by the U.S. in the Gulf War. And uh, Syria lost its uh, patron ally, uh, the Soviet Union. So there's no real strategic threat. But it also Israel realizes, and I think a little bit too late, but eventually realizes that non-state actors, guerrilla, uh, terrorists, tend not to be deterred by mm -hmm. its uh, military superiority. Uh, so it's kind of like, it, there's a problem here. Uh, but and in that kind of particular situation, triadic coercion seems almost like a magic bullet, because mm -hmm. this is using the same idea of deterrence mm -hmm. that was uh, hardened into Israeli uh, strategic culture and, uh, and practices, but moving the, the ball back into the state-to-state -state, mm -hmm. uh, uh, court, which is 
both familiar and it's a court in which Israel holds a preponderance. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it looks like, yay, that's the great uh, solution to that. Mm-hmm. But the logic of it still seems a little bit odd to me. So let's assume that, say, Hezbollah mm-hmm. is you know, a non-state actor within Lebanon mm-hmm. and is viewed as pursuing its own interests, and Israel then decides to bomb the rest of Lebanon, wouldn't that solidify support for Hezbollah rather than compel the state to try and turn against them? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. First, I'll go back a few steps, uh, maybe in the question of how it, Israel came to this in the first place, and as it considers the legal dimensions. When we, dig, we dug into the history, um, we saw that in the early 1950s, Israel's primary, you know, primary strategy facing this type of a situation was actually to target the civilian communities. Reprisals. Reprisals mm-hmm. from which these oh, typically Palestinian um, infiltrations, as, as Israelis mm-hmm. call them, or uh, threats came from. And it was in 1953, there was a massive reprisal against Libya, the town in um, the Jordanian-controlled uh, West Bank, um, against civilians that led to enormous international criticism of Israel killing civilians as a way of putting pressure on a village to stop mm-hmm. uh, stop mm-hmm. infiltrators. And at that point, shifted to state targets rather than civilian targets as perhaps even the more legal, more ethical um, strategy that would avoid some of this international criticism. And it's then we see this policy and we see its evolution and change and hardening over time. But to get back to your other question of wouldn't targeting the state of Lebanon, um, would, would the Lebanese rally around the flag of Hezbollah? It's, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting consideration. I think it's an empirical question. I think in Lebanon after 2006, you see some degrees of rallying around the flag and you also see internal criticism of Hezbollah, of how did you drag us into this mm-hmm. you know, tremendously costly war in the first place. Um, but those, are what we seem to find in the Israeli discourse are some questions that we feel the Israeli decision makers aren't asking themselves enough, mm-hmm. that there's a sense of, of, of punish and use enough force and the host state will act accordingly. It will take responsibility because this is what states have to do um, over what, what happens in mm-hmm. their, their territory. Yeah. And uh, uh, in, in a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism uh, literature, you can find a lot of discussion about hearts and minds mm-hmm. and how, uh, how do you shift the hearts and minds. And in this particular kind of Israeli form of that, uh, so there's a shift to think about hearts and minds, but in a very narrow way, that is, we just need to uh, impose a severe enough punishment uh, on the other side, so their hearts and mind or uh, their consciousness in the, in the Israeli power uh, will change. Uh, basically by uh, just uh, increasing and increasing the level of, of punishment. Uh, and there's very little consideration. So for instance, in the case of Lebanon, this particular, uh, um, particularly uh, uh, interesting because Lebanon, with as we know, with all of its uh, cleavages and uh, all of its uh, nuanced identity issues, there's... Uh, quite a large uh, potential there actually for people to, to support Israel mm-hmm. against Hezbollah, for instance. And in early stages of the Lebanon, of the 2006 war, we actually see significant uh, segments of the Lebanese uh, society as at least, uh, uh, at least uh, opposing what uh, the uh, Hezbollah's provocation. Uh, but 
in part of this, what we argued, uh, the culture of triadic coercion is that Israel tends not to see these nuances. And it, they, they are all the same. They only understand the language of uh, power and the language of coercion. At what point does a non-state actor become state-like enough that this logic just doesn't apply anymore? I'm thinking about Hamas in controlling Gaza or Hezbollah getting to the, the level of cohesion that it is today in South Lebanon. It, well, that's a, an, almost an interesting sort of irony that in um, over the course of this book, which, which mirrors the course of, of the history of this part of, of the Middle East, in the beginning stages of the book, what was the non-state actor, the Palestinians, by chapter five of our book, becomes effectively the host government. So in one, we do see when the Palestinian Authority, which we clearly recognize is not a state and lacks the sovereignty of a state, Israel treats it as such in the, in the 1990s, saying that the Arafat-led PA has to take responsibility either for um, a sort of a feta young guard militants or for Hamas. And what we see almost, you know, Ironically, um, the same happening now that Hamas in the Gaza Strip, Israel's rhetoric seems to also treat it as the responsible government, mm -hmm. although the Israel and Hamas clearly don't recognize each other and so forth. You know, the rhetoric of when there have been non-Hamas groups in the Gaza Strip, Salafi groups, some sort of ISIS-affiliated or inspired groups that are carrying out rocket attacks, you have interesting aspects of Israeli rhetoric saying Hamas, as the government in Gaza, needs to take responsibility and stop these groups. So what was yesterday's non-state actor, now if it, if mm -hmm. it becomes more state-like, well, it then is treated as a host state and has to bear the same responsibilities. Again, not uh, regardless of if it's political cohesion and institutional capacity actually enables mm -hmm. it to act as such. The logic is, if you're in charge, you're in charge and responsible for anything that comes from your territory. So if, if Israeli national security officials today read your book, would they mm -hmm. come away from this saying, we're doing a pretty good job? Or would they come away from it saying, we really need to change this policy because there's something fundamentally flawed with it? So ideally, <laughs> I think if they would read the book uh, and seriously consider it, would come away with it, with uh, uh, the need to reconsider and to think about even from the even if even without considering the moral implications, but just the uh, uh, the logic of consequences, uh, we are doing a, a, a work that is a, a, at least flawed uh, because we don't consider uh, these uh, nuances, we don't consider regime strength uh, or weakness, and how will our policy affect uh, the action mm -hmm. of, of this regime. Um, th this is still our hope that, uh, that they uh, can do that, but uh, the irony is because uh, the uh, uh, the strategic culture is so strong. I think it's it makes it much harder to accept anything that that goes against it and and actually uh, rethink the policy. You you start the book in the acknowledgement section by talking about that as you started off today mm -hmm. um, that the book it was motivated by these moral questions. Mm -hmm. The book itself is actually much more, it seems to me, kind of a conventional political science work, which really does a great job of like tracing out the process and the mechanisms and the logic of the argument. But 
Do you go back to those original moral questions? I mean, how does the book itself answer those questions that you started with? It's a great question. I mean, I think that, that Boaz's last comments get to it. I, mean, I think that they're, you know, in many ways, our, our guiding inspiration. It's what made us care and made us think that this book was worth um, devoting many, many years to uh, because it wasn't, I mean, I think that we both found it intellectually um, rewarding, that mm -hmm. the figuring out the mechanisms and the puzzle aspect and the decision tree and the arguments and the research itself was also fascinating and fun to do because it took us back into history as well as looking at questions that are quite contemporary. But for me, the fact that there was a larger mission, it wasn't simply to solve a political science puzzle. Um, it wasn't simply to look at the intersection between intrastate conflict and interstate conflict, that these are issues of, of real importance. And as Boa discussed the change of the security environment as Israel faces, sees that it's its most serious threats are from non-state actors rather than states, that this is only bound to be a more and more uh, pressing problem in the in the years to come. And we are also, I think we're quite um, moved in, and, and pushed to write this because of the continuing security discourse in Israel and how Israel has made sense of the lessons of the 2006 war and drawn lessons from the 2006 war, which in many ways we find to be flawed. So. Uh, we hope that this could in inspire conversation and rethinking, and we think it's pressing that there are real lives on the line um, when these policies are used and used incorrectly. And as Boaz was saying, that we feel are you know that not only um, threaten the lives and well-being of 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 civilians and actors in the Arab states on Israel's borders, but also carries out a policy that we don't think is in Israel's national security interests either. Yeah, and 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 ultimately. I think so long as Israel perceive it in a way that there's this uh, strategy, this policy uh, that that will work well, and that uh, and it doesn't consider the the uh, areas and the and the conditions under which it doesn't work, uh, it makes it uh, it has less incentive to actually looking for a uh, a long term. Uh, solutions uh, which are in the end have to be diplomatic and uh, have to uh, to be uh, talking about peace uh, seriously not in the way that it's done right now well thanks we've been speaking with wendy perlman of northwestern university and boaz zatzili from american university about their book triadic coercion which just came out with columbia university press uh, thank you for joining us thank you thanks